Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law, its relationships with society and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chen. I'm Dorothea, and we are your podcast editors. Today, we'll be joined by Professor Scott Hershowitz, who will be discussing some of the key ideas explored in his new book, Law as a Moral Practice. Professor Scott Hershowitz is Director of the Law and Ethics Programme and Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Michigan. Prior to this, Scott Hershowitz was an attorney advisor on the appellate staff of the Civil Division of the US Department of Justice. Scott Hershowitz studies and writes publications on philosophical questions related to law, including the intersection between law and morality and the obligation to obey the law. These topics influence his discussion in his upcoming book about jurisprudence called Law as a Moral Practice. This will be published by the Harvard University Press in December 2023. Professor Scott Hershwitz, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to get to visit Oxford even virtually. Yes, thank you. I understand your upcoming book centers around this idea of law as a moral practice. Could you explain what you mean by this? Absolutely. So let's first start with the the idea of a moral practice, because it's not a phrase I think that um, people are really familiar with, but they're familiar with the kinds of things that I think of as moral practices. So the idea is that um, there are some things that we do in order to change the moral relationships that we have. Maybe the easiest case to think about is promising. So um, you know, we all signed on um, to uh, to record this podcast at the same time. We signed on because we'd made an agreement, right, um, in advance by email that we'd all gather uh, at, at 10 a.m. my time to have this conversation. And, you know, before you reached out to me, before we negotiated a time, before we set it, um, we didn't have a responsibility to be here, right? But afterwards, we um, we made a commitment to each other. Right. So that changed our moral relationship. And so I think of promising as a moral practice in the sense that um, it's a way of rearranging the moral relationships that we have. Right. There's no guarantee um, that uh, that promises are themselves moral. Right. And there's not even a guarantee that any particular promise will accomplish what it's intended to do. So one thing I, I talk a lot about in the book are immoral promises. Like so people say people in the mob. Right, make make promises that they'll um, work together to kill someone or extort money, and I don't think those promises have the moral consequences that those people intend. But I think typically they intend right to change their moral relationships, and that's what I'm interested in when I think about moral practices and promises. I should say aren't the only ones, right? So um, I make rules for my kids in my house, right? I tell them that you know you have to finish your homework before you play video games. Or, um, you know, we allocate responsibility, who's going to take out the trash and who's going to wash the dishes. And, you know, like these, um, uh, you know, edicts or orders that are sometimes issued are also ways of restructuring what rights and responsibilities um, the people in our house have, right? And so then we could, you know, add more examples, right, to our list of moral practices. Sometimes, um, you know, we offer forgiveness, right? Uh, People um, uh, who've wronged us may owe us some sort of redress. And we say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I forgive you, right? That's a, a practice that releases a claim, right, that you might otherwise have against someone. 
And so what I sort of start in the book by doing is saying, look, we've got lots of practices in our lives that we um, use to reshape the moral relationships that we have. And then the thought is, right, the, the title of the book is Law is a Moral Practice. It's that our legal practices are among those practices. So the idea, um, just to give you a kind of, of point of contrast, um, it's common among philosophers of law to think that what, what our legal practices do is generate an alternative normative system, something that's different from morality, it's separate from morality, and you know it might conflict with morality or it might match up with morality, but um, our legal practices bring about a kind of new set of rights and obligations that are distinctively legal. And the point of my book is to invite people to think about it differently, to see our legal practices as ways in which we might try and um, restructure our moral relationships, right? To see it as something like promising or issue ordering orders in your household, or even sometimes forgiving, say, when we grant clemency. Um, so the idea when I say laws and moral practices, that law, legal practices are tools that we use to change our moral relationships. Thank you for outlining this idea. And it seems your book is essentially an invitation to view the law from this compelling and original perspective. However, there could be issues in framing the law around this somewhat loose idea of morality, even though it is so intertwined with the everyday examples that you've laid out. So why exactly should we conceptualize the law in this way? So I think there are um, a number of advantages to um, to thinking about the law this way. And let's just, um, let me just walk through a few. Um, the, the first is I think that... Um, uh, it helps explain uh, both the significance um, that we um, accord the law, and the second is that it helps explain some of the conflicts that we have about the law. So let's think about um, the significance that we accord the law to start. Um, like, uh, so most people, right, are accustomed in lots of contexts, right, in trying to understand what their responsibilities are in the world to um, to looking to the law, right, um, to settle say, what they might owe someone that they've been in business with or, um, uh, you know, what they might owe in taxes. And lots of people, not everyone, um, kind of move through the world thinking that um, I ought to discharge my legal obligations. And there's a long conversation in uh, philosophy of law about whether this attitude um, is warranted um, uh, when people have it and just what would make it the case that it's warranted. And um, I've always been a bit perplexed by the conversation. So like if you sort of think about like it's the, the sort of writing that's famous under the heading of is there an obligation to obey the law, which traces back to Plato's Crito. But like the conversation continues all the way through the 20th century with Hart and Rawls and Dworkin all offering sort of novel approaches. Some people think we're obligated to obey the law um, out of gratitude for what the laws provided us. Some people think that we're obligated to obey the law um, because we have duties of fair play. If we're getting benefits from the law, we should return, um, uh, you know, we should confer benefits on others through offering our obedience. Uh, Raw suggested that maybe we um, are obligated to obey the law when uh, the law is comprised of just institutions. Um, the, the issue is that um, it's kind of widely recognized among philosophers of law that most of these arguments aren't very good. They don't go very far in explaining why in the circumstances of actual legal systems, people would have obligations to obey the law. So just um, take gratitude as, uh, as an illustration. Um, 
you know, some of us may have reasons to be grateful for what the law has supplied. A great many people in our society probably don't. It may be um, on net not a good thing for them. But even if you just restrict your attention to people that have um, been uh, have done have, uh, who the law has done well by, right? Um, it's not obvious that uh, even if they should feel gratitude, that the best way to express their gratitude is by offering obedience. Um, that's not a customary way of expressing gratitude. And um, uh, and it's not clear why, even if it was a good way of expressing gratitude, it's, it's not the only way of expressing gratitude. So it's not clear why you'd be obligated to obey the law. And we could walk through, there's a very famous article by M.B. Smith called, Is There a Prima Facie Obligation to Obey the Law?, um, where he walks through all the standard justifications for an obligation to obey the law, and he finds them wanting, right? Um, and similarly, John Simmons has reached uh, like the same set of conclusions, and uh, um, you know Joseph Fraz was was skeptical, right, that in the circumstances of modern legal systems, that law have uh, authority of near the scope that they tend to claim. Right. So um, now you could think that's fine. It just turns out that the law claims that we're obligated to obey it, but we're not really. Um, and people are making a kind of moral mistake when they look to the law to settle what their obligations might be. Um, but I think there's a different way of looking at the problem. Right. It's to imagine that our legal practices are part of our moral lives. Right. So that um, it's not something separate. Then we then ask, oh, hey, there's something separate over there. Should I do what it says? It's rather to imagine it seems quite plausible to me that all of the goings-on in our legal system, acts of legislation, acts of adjudication, acts of regulation, are the kinds of things that morally matter. They really are capable of directly restructuring our moral relationships. And that what we're doing when we look to the law is we're looking to the stuff that we think makes a moral difference, um, not for like one particular reason, not for reasons of gratitude or fair play, um, but for uh, a constellation of reasons that may um, differ depending on the bit of law that we're talking about and the role that it plays in our lives. And, and in the book, I try and explore that all in great detail. That brings me to the kind of second reason I think this is an attractive way to look at law. Um, you know, uh, we often disagree about what the law is. Um, even when we can agree on all the social facts, we agree what the social, we agree what the statute says, we agree what Decisions have been made in the past, say, by courts, but we still disagree about what our legal rights and obligations are. And I've always thought that's a little bit mysterious if you think that the content of the law is just determined by social facts. If, if we agree on the social facts, how is it that we could disagree about the content of the law? Um, the view I'm offering, I think, offers a kind of explanation. It's um, that morality is something we disagree about um, frequently, deeply, frequently, persistently, um, you know, even if we are, um, you know, we, we agree on who said what when we made a commitment to be somewhere or do something. We may disagree because we've got different pictures of, say, the morality of promising of what's required of us. And so I think an advantage of, of thinking of law as a moral practice is that it helps us to get a, a better appreciation of the nature of, of many of the conflicts that we have about law. There are moral conflicts, and that's why they're so difficult to resolve. Yes, I can see the strength of your argument in explaining why these challenging debates about the law and morality arise. So thank you. So your argument that the law compels us to abide by moral obligations links to the ongoing debate of whether we're obligated to obey the law, which you've touched on already. But could you just clarify where exactly your argument fits into this debate? 
Sure. So I think the debate has, um, as I suggested in my last answer, I think the debate has kind of proceeded on a mistaken assumption um, or like a, a, a misguided picture about how it is that the law would make a moral difference. So like the standard view is that law is a separate normative system from morality. And then the question is, are you ever like directed by morality to look to what the law requires of you? And I'm inviting people to think of the problem differently, to think that our legal practices are things that directly make a difference in our moral lives. And um, and to think that actually um, there's a chapter in the book called Stop in the Name of Law, which is about these debates about whether we're obligated to obey the law. Um, uh, to think that like people may be looking in the wrong place for the kind of moral difference that law makes. So I mentioned MBE Smith before. He says, look, I don't think there's an obligation to obey the law. Um, and if I did, um, uh, if there was such an obligation, I think it would be a relatively uh, trivial obligation because the law doesn't really affect what's morally right and wrong. And, and I think he's mostly right about that last point, that the law doesn't really affect what's morally right and wrong all that much, right? So uh, just think what he has in mind for a moment. He thinks um, that, uh, you know, if you take an act that's really wrong, like say murdering somebody, if there turned out to be some loophole that a particular form of murder um, was uh, was not unlawful in a community, that, um, that uh, it would still be morally wrong and it wouldn't be any less morally wrong for the fact that say a loophole left that form of murder uncovered. Um, and, uh, and I think he's, I think he's right about that. I think the law, um, you know, especially in cases of what lawyers call, uh, mal uh, 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 wrongs that are ma mala in say, um, are things that are wrong in themselves quite apart with the law has to say about them. The law doesn't really change the moral significance of those acts. Um, uh, there's also mal prohibitive things that wouldn't be um, wrong, but for the fact that the law says they are. So think like um, the law tells you where you might, you know, where I live in Michigan, the law tells you where you can park in a snowstorm, right? So that the streets can be kept clear for the plows to come through. And it wouldn't be wrong to park your car in a particular place absent the sign that says don't park there. But once the sign is there, then uh, then it does become wrong. But again, as, as um, Smith and others point out, it's, it's wrong, not so much because the law says so, but because of um, the sort of like complicated social practice that depends on you're not being there. You're going to disrupt a lot of people's lives if you're blocking the snowplow coming through. So the, the legal directive is playing a role, but it's really like the fact that um, you'll cause problems. It's giving people a reason not to do it. So I think I'm on board with Smith's thought that um, the law um, doesn't dramatically change um, uh, in most cases what it's right or wrong to do. Um, but where I sort of want to say something different than what's been said in the literature before is I think that that's not often what the law is trying to do. It's trying to rearrange our moral relationships in different ways. And so in the book, I make my case through a case. Um, it's a case of, of a teenage boy who was um, prosecuted for um, sexual assault, a crime in... Um, uh, a crime in um, uh, in his state, uh, which I think was Oklahoma. Um, it was called forcible sodomy. He had forced um, oral sex on somebody who was unconscious due to intoxication. And it turned out there was an error in drafting the statute, right? Um, it um, prohibited um, forced oral sex in lots of contexts, 
but it left out a prohibition on forced oral sex on somebody who was intoxicated and therefore not in a position to consent. And that that provision um, appeared in other places in the sexual assault statutes. If it had been a different type of penetration, it would have been unlawful. But just because of what looks like a co- like a, like literally a copy paste error in a computer, somebody forgot to copy all of the provisions from one section to another. It turned out that there was a kind of failure of the principle of legality here. That um, the boy's conduct, though um, though morally wrongful and deeply so, didn't constitute a crime. Uh, in the state of Oklahoma. And so when charges were brought against him, he moved to dismiss them and the courts dismissed them. And that was more or less the universally agreed upon right result in his case. But but more or less instantly, the state legislature sprang into action and they passed a law um, prohibiting um, forcing oral sex on someone who was intoxicated. And And one question I ask in the book is, well, what difference did that law make? And I think the answer is like it didn't make what the boy had done wrongful. It was already wrongful. It didn't make it any more wrongful than it otherwise would have been. Like I'm not inclined to blame him any, him any less for what he did than I would blame somebody who was um, convicted under the same uh, convicted of the same act today. Now that that statute has been enacted, but something I think did change about the moral relationship between the boy and his community. I think in enacting that law, um, the community removed a right that the boy had not to be punished for um, conduct that hadn't been announced and advanced as criminal, right? So this is, I think, a law that made a significant moral difference, right? It made it the case that he was obligated not just to his victim, but obligated to his community not to commit this act and in such a way that they would have the standing to punish him if he did. Right. So part of what I'm trying to do in the book is um, shift our attention right, um, from asking questions like, you know, Smith's question. He wants to know, um, does the law um, uh, affect what's morally right and wrong to do? And I think sometimes, but often that's not the effect it's trying to have. It's not trying to make what the boy in this case did wrongful. Rather, it's trying to give the state the moral standing to punish him for it. And I think that's what lots of criminal law is trying to do. Thank you for explaining this. And could you examine in further detail your argument that legal practices succeed in rearranging our moral practices? So I think it's really important to say sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I don't think it's an all or nothing switch. I don't think it's like, oh, in the UK or in America, things are going good or good enough. And so we're obligated to do all the law requires or, you know, whereas, you know, in some other country, you know, Taliban, Afghanistan, things are going relatively poorly. And so nobody's obligated. I don't think it works like that. Right. I think different legal practices rearrange our moral relationships in different ways and for different reasons. So let me give you, um, you know, I just gave you one example um, with this, um, with this principle of legality case, but I'll give you another example from like my legal home is tort law. There's been lots of changes in, uh, in tort law over the 20th century. Like what sorts of wrongs are we going to recognize? What sorts of wrongs are we going to provide redress for? So I was just talking to my tort students about the abandonment of what are called the amatory torts, torts that were 
um, involved wrongs in romantic relationships. So there used to be sort of three kinds of wrongs that were recognizable and redressable through tort law. One was called criminal conversation. That's a claim that um, you would bring, typically a man would bring against um, another man who was having an affair with his spouse. Right. And then there was a claim called alienation of affections. Right. That's a, a claim that you would bring against somebody who was, uh, you know, sort of maybe persuaded your spouse to leave you. It was often brought against in laws that uh, were interfering in a romantic relationship. And then the third um, was a claim called seduction that was often brought by the parents of a young girl, um, typically against an older man who had had sex with her outside of marriage. And so for a long time, the law treated these things as wrongs and not just as wrongs, but as wrongs that were redressable. These laws were abandoned for a variety of reasons. One is like already embedded in the explanation I give you, you can see that they were gendered in various ways and really relied on a kind of proprietary, like a, a view that, um, that men had a proprietary interest in their wives and in their daughters. And as people became um, uh, uncomfortable with those ideas and wanted to reject them, um, different jurisdictions did different things. Some jurisdictions said, we're going to have a gender neutral version of this. A woman could sue um, the woman who has an affair with her husband for, say, criminal conversation. But many more jurisdictions, and eventually almost all of them, just said, you know what? The law doesn't belong in this business, right? It's not that, um, it's not that uh, it may not be morally wrong to commit adultery or that it may not be morally wrong to try and... Um, you know, persuade somebody to leave their romantic partner. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It probably is highly dependent on the circumstances, whether anybody's misbehaving in those sorts of circumstances. But in most places, courts and legislatures came to think this is just isn't a good business for the courts to be involved in. Like, it's not clear that courts can offer good remedies. It's not clear that, um, that it's improving people's relationships by getting involved in them. In America, at least in most places, these torts were eliminated by statute. And, and I think those statutes um, that eliminated these causes of action, they rearranged people's moral relationships. Again, not by changing, you know, like, what's fair in love and war, right? Like not by making it okay to commit adultery or not making it okay to commit adultery. But it, but before the abandonment of these statutes, right, if somebody had slept with your spouse, then you had a right to a right against the court to hold them responsible and a right against them that they would pay you damages. And so like the adoption of these statutes removed a right which people had previously had. And, and we can spin out lots of examples, places where um, we make changes in the law and that um, changes the, um, the kinds of claims that we can make against each other um, and, uh, and what other people owe us. You speak of the law as succeeding in rearranging our moral practices. Is it at all possible for moral practices um, to rearrange legal practices? If so, would the law be more desirable as a result? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think you, you want to be able to think about the relationship between law and morality in two different directions, right? So we've been talking mostly about um, the way that law shapes what morality requires. And there's a section in the book titled uh, Law as a Source of Morality. Um, and uh, and the thought is that sometimes in order to know what we morally owe each other, um, we need to look to what um, our legal practices are and, and, and try and figure out how they've shaped our moral relationships. Um, 
but you can also um, look at things from the other direction. And you can ask, how does morality shape our legal practices? And, uh, and I think it, um, uh, it shapes them in all sorts of ways, um, in part because what we're trying to do through many of our legal practices is, um, is uh, enforce some of the moral rights that we have. Um, and so just think about like tort law again, or you can think about contract law, just think about any part of the private law, really, right? You might think, oh, there's some agreements that um, we make that morally ought to be kept, or some ways in which we might injure each other, um, for which we ought to provide um, moral redress. And then as a way of, um, uh, and, and then as a way of making sure those things happen, as a way of making sure that um, redress is offered or that agreements are kept, one thing we can do is create legal institutions like contract law or like tort law through which people have a formal mechanism of bringing claims and employing the coercive power of the state to make sure that other people are meeting those obligations. And um, one thing we should expect if that's how these institutions are being used is that they'll um, map, maybe not perfectly, but to a large degree, uh, onto what we think are, are what our moral sensibilities are about when people are, say, wrongfully injuring each other and what's owed as a consequence. And, um, you know, I, as I tell my tort students often, right, you can feel your way through this institution, right, even if you don't know much about what the legal rules are by asking, hey, whose responsibility do I think this is? And what do I think they should be required to do about it, right? The law has its kind of own concerns once you start to institutionalize things and try and make them regular across lots of cases. So your like pre, pre-legal moral sensibility may not give you a perfect guide to what the law is going to do with any particular case, but it's going to give you a really good start, right? And so part of what I want to invite people to do is to sort of think in both directions, to think um, about the way morality shapes law, um, uh, but then also to think about the way um, law in turn shapes morality. We've already touched on how this idea of law as a moral practice fits in with other areas of the law. So does this argument explain legal doctrines such as promissory estoppel and contract and assumption of the risk in tort, which seem to be underpinned by ideas of morality and the law according individuals with moral responsibility? Yeah, so I think that... Um, you know, uh, one would expect, especially um, in private law, which is really um, uh, trying to um, institutionalize and give us a formal mechanism for enforcing our rights against each other, um, we should expect that most features of the law, like assumption of the risk or like promissory estoppel, will have some kind of moral rationale and a moral rationale that may even um, uh pre-exist the law and be compelling quite apart from the law, right? So that, um, you know, think about um, assumption of risk, right? If you see a danger and voluntarily and choose to encounter it, then we might think it's um, inappropriate for you to complain about being injured by um, by that danger later on. And uh, so, um, you know, as I said, like, I don't think the law fully tracks our pre-legal moral sensibilities, because um, in the institutionalization of things, right, you somehow you sometimes have um, 
you know, special concerns about hearing lots of cases and trying to get consistent answers. Um, and maybe courts are good at getting sometimes some kinds of information and not good at getting other kinds of information. So they tailor their doctrines to the kinds of information that's going, they're going to be available to them. But, um, you know, to a, to a first approximation, I think that there are large swaths of the law that, uh, where the doctrines are well explained by, um, what we take our moral rights and responsibilities to be and would take them to be quite apart from what the law has to say. So even though these areas of laws may be underpinned by ideas relating to morality or moral responsibility, such as promise keeping, is it true to say that upon institutionalization through legal practices, these concepts become watered down? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I sometimes um, uh, teach my students um, uh, a case from Massachusetts where um, a couple uh, college age college age uh, students that um, are having sex and uh, the opinion is kind of funny because the judges are clearly uncomfortable describing what the couple is doing, um, but they have to find a way to describe it. Uh, it's nothing out of the ordinary. All that happens is that uh, like she kind of um, crashes into him awkwardly and causes him a significant injury, which I won't describe. Um, and and the court says something rather incredible, right? As a like as a result of its discomfort, they say that in the state of Massachusetts, if you're having sex with somebody, you don't owe a duty to take uh, ordinary care to protect them against injuries. And when I say that's rather incredible, I just mean like, how could it be that um, you could be engaged in this like highly intimate act with somebody and owe them no duty like to take care for their well-being? And and what the court means is um, is not that you have no like moral responsibilities to somebody that you're having sex with. What they mean is that we're not going to use this kind of institution, um, the law, to review the question whether you took um, adequate care for somebody when you were having sex with them. Now, I'm not sure actually that was the right result. I think it was driven by their discomfort and their concern about calling a jury in and having this couple describe how they were having sex so they could figure out whether she was behaving reasonably or unreasonably. And I get why that made them feel a little bit um, uh, uh, uncomfortable, but it may be that, you know, sometimes you have to have lawsuits about uncomfortable subject matters. Um, but, but again, like it's, it's an illustration of the fact that sometimes the question is that's being asked in a court is not what were the moral rights of, and responsibilities of this, of these parties, but rather what are the moral rights and responsibilities that we should use this institution to enforce and in Massachusetts, they decided, even though we think you have to take ordinary care when you're driving and we're going to adjudicate claims about that, we're just not going to adjudicate claims about whether you took ordinary care when you're having sex. Taking into account the institutionalization of the moral tenants underlying these legal practices, is it then possible for specific moral theories to have a direct implication on or rearrange legal practices? So I think that um, many of our legal practices are immoral um, in the same way that um, many people make immoral promises. So I mentioned, you know, like mobsters making promises to each other right at the outset. In America, we have a massive problem with mass incarceration. We conceive of ourselves as fighting a war on drugs and we um, lock people up for shockingly long uh, periods of time. 
um, for um, of, oftentimes offenses that um, that didn't cause an injury to anyone. And, and, you know, we could multiply other moral practices that are, uh, are immoral. And, um, and I think when we have immoral practices, we uh, immoral, sorry, when we have immoral legal practices, we ought to improve them. Right. Um, and that, uh, um, like philosophers, um, uh, and, and social critics, um, can, can lay bare the problems with our legal practices and, uh, and help us to see the possibility of adopting better ones. And actually like, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I tend not to think that like, you just want to take a moral, uh, moral theory off the shelf and be like, Oh, for you utilitarians, we'll, we would do X or Y or Z or for Kantians, we would do something. I think like you want to look to, um, like what particular moral problem are we trying to solve and what are the problems with the way that our legal practices are working and, and then try and tailor, um, better solutions from there. But I, but I suppose my answer is there are um, absolutely endless opportunities um, to, to improve the law morally, even in places where it's good enough that it's making a difference um, in changing people's moral relationships. Um, uh, it, can, it can almost always be improved substantially. Yes, thank you. And I, and I think the relationship between reconciling the law and morality makes a lot more sense on that basis. Um, it seems that the ability for the law to rearrange moral practices means lawmakers would have to make decisions as to what constitutes correct moral behaviour. Is this a problem given the fact that morality is inherently subjective? So I think I want to push back on the premise that morality is inherently subjective. Um, morality is something that we just disagree about and something about which we have um, different opinions. And as I said, I think that's part of the explanation of why we sometimes disagree about what our legal rights are. But I don't think the fact that we um, have disagreements or even that our disagreements are sometimes shaped by our um, different backgrounds and experiences indicates that the enterprise is inherently subjective. And I want to distinguish, um, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, two different kinds of disagreements that we might have. Um, so I'll use an example that um, uh, I sometimes borrow from my Michigan colleague, Don Herzog, who imagines that you're standing in line at the ice cream shop and uh, and you're about to order um, vanilla ice cream. Maybe you've even said, I'd like vanilla. And then the person in the back of the line says, vanilla, that, that, that's awful. You shouldn't order vanilla. And you turn to him and you say, why? And I want you, like, you can imagine two different kinds of responses, right? One might, one is he might say, oh, chocolate's obviously better. Right. And this feels like a kind of difference in taste, right? That, um, you know, like you might like chocolate better and I might like vanilla better. And there's uh, there's nothing to be said um, beyond that. Um, we each have these different preferences. It's not like one preference is um, objectively better than another. I don't have to offer you a justification of the fact that I like vanilla better and you're making a mistake or the guy behind me is making a mistake when he um demands that I order the thing he likes rather than the thing I like, right? But but suppose when I turned around as, as he's objected to my ordering vanilla, um, suppose he says something different, right? Suppose he says, um, like, it's awful to order vanilla because like the conditions under which vanilla beans are harvested are um, really oppressive um, to the workers. They're kept saying conditions that um, approximate slavery. Now, I have no idea whether this is true. I hope it's not just, but just take it, take it that that's his objection 
for a moment. Right now, he said something really rather different. Right, um, he's made a kind of moral claim that um, one ought not um, eat vanilla because it's been, makes you complicit in these practices that um, are oppressive to other people. And I think if I'm going to persist, then right, I do offer some. I do need to offer some kind of uh, justification for what it is that I'm up to. Maybe I'll disagree with his facts. Maybe I'll say, oh, no, you're out of date and this place deals in fair trade vanilla. Or maybe, you know, maybe I'll have a kind of moral view that even if that's happening there, it's not my responsibility. Or maybe, right, I should be moved by what he says. I should think, oh my gosh, I didn't realize. But now that you've told me, right, what's going on, um, I need to adjust my behavior, right? I don't think that, um, that moral objections, moral claims um, are matters of taste about which we say, hey, you've got your view and I've got mine. Um, I think that um, that there are um, demands that we take on each other because we think there are good reasons to make those demands, reasons that other people should recognize, and that when we disagree, the proper thing to do is to um, work together to figure out uh, what reasons we have and who's right or wrong. And actually, our moral debates tend to presume that there could be right and wrong answers, even though we're often having trouble dis- uh, agreeing on what they are. Thank you for this clarification. You've touched on this idea already, but how does your argument align with the existence of immoral laws or practices? Yeah, I think in the last answer, I talked a little bit about this. So in the same way that I think that um, immoral, like, so I, I think promises are a moral practice, but that doesn't mean all practices are immoral. And it doesn't mean that every particular promise is going to actually succeed in what it's intended to do. It's not necessarily going to succeed in rearranging people's moral relationships. I think the same is true of law, that um, that legal practices are intended to rearrange moral people's relationships, but many of them are immoral and for that reason fail to rearrange people's moral relationships. So in the country I live in for a long time, the legal practices purported to recognize some people as the owners of other people. And I think there's no set of practices that you could adopt that would make it the case that some people owned other people, right? So I think that these folks were kind of participating in um, a mass delusion or confusion. Um, They acted as if some people had property rights in other human beings that they just didn't, right? So I want to be crystal clear in saying that law is a moral practice. The claim is not right, that law is always moral or that it always makes the moral difference that's intended or the rights that legal institutions recognize are always rights that individuals actually have. Um, But I want to say, like, the same thing happens in our moral lives. Like, the mobsters make promises to each other and then they recognize each other maybe as having rights that they um, don't actually have and they proceed accordingly. Um, So so the claim is not that... um, Law is a moral practice means that all our, our moral practice, all our legal practices are good ones to have and they're making the moral difference that they intend. I think nothing could be further from the truth. And nevertheless, I still think it's valuable to, to see law as something that is intended to make a moral difference in our lives and to see our legal conflicts as conflicts about just what rights and responsibilities we have and what difference our legal practices have made um, in uh uh, in in giving us those rights and responsibilities. Professor Hershwitz, thank you for taking the time to speak on the podcast today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
That was Professor Scott Hershowitz speaking with us on the laws and moral practice. For more legal writings and discussions on other topics, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. Thank you.